couple more little subjects now to, to take up as we, as, as we finish up. Okay, so as I said in my introduction when I talked to you about the nature of Corinth, uh, a lot of their problems were about sexual morality. All right? And, um, well, first of all, let, let, let's, take, let's take the passage I've, I've chosen here, just about, the, about what Paul's talking about sexual morality. I'm just going to read this here. Uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. As God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. So shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Okay, glorify God with your body. That's Paul's battle cry. That's how he approaches this entire subject. But let's step back for a moment and stop and ask this question. Um, Why is it that the Greeks had such a hard time with sexual morality in the first place? Now, you might be tempted to think, well, you know, that's just kind of slouching human nature and everybody always has. It was actually different for the Greeks. For the Greeks, it really was, you know, you go back 2,000 years and a lot of things are different. The Greeks had a clear understanding of the primacy of the soul, right? Far better than the moderns did. You see, they knew that the years go by, we change. We get taller. And if we keep the years keep on going by, we actually start getting shorter again. Okay? And and you know, your 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 weight changes and your hair changes and you know. But what about what about you remains the same? The soul remains the same. So the Greeks would say that the real part of you is what they would call the psyche, the soul. They could say that's like an iron bar. It, it's, it's, it's the real you. Okay. So from this understanding that was deeply rooted in, in Greek philosophy, okay, um, what you ended up with was an understanding where the Greeks were looking down on the body. The ancient Greeks were looking down on the body. They say that uh, the body was a tomb. That was a proverb among the ancient Greeks. Epictetus, which was one of the major Stoics of the time, he said, I'm a soul shackled to a corpse. Okay? So what you ended up with was two attitudes among the Greeks. Two attitudes. And this might kind of ring true for, you know, for those of you who may be familiar with a little bit about this, this ancient Greek culture. You had one group of people, they were very, very strict. Okay? Like the Stoics. Everybody's heard of the Stoics, right? And the Spartans, okay, very, very strict. Because they said, gosh, I've got to beat down into subjection this bad, bad body. And then you had another group, like the Epicureans, or the people who were working the, 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 the temple to Aphrodite back in Corinth, okay, and they said, hey, the body doesn't matter, do whatever you want. And as you could tell, that was very popular, okay? People ran, people ran with that. Okay, now Paul, when Paul was back in Corinth, he had said, all things are lawful for me, 
Okay, Paul, and that's the first. That's where he, that's where he leads off here. He says, quotes himself. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now, what Paul was talking about was the Jewish law, right? He's not bound by the Jewish law anymore. And I could go off on that, but you know, I don't want to t- digress too much. But why don't we eat kosher? Why can we have bacon cheeseburgers? Okay, I had one priest. He gave his Easter homily on the idea that if it hadn't been for the resurrection, you couldn't have bacon. (laughs) Now, that's one way of understanding the greatness of the resurrection. I could say it goes deeper than that, but hey, that's a start. But, um, But why? Because Christ has fulfilled everything, and it's our faith in Him that's the real observance of a far deeper law in which all the rest is fulfilled. That's when Paul was saying, all things are lawful for me. But the trouble is, the Corinthians heard that and said, hey, hey, all things are lawful for you, Paul, and I'm in the right town. Right? <laughs> and, Paul's, and, and, Paul, and Paul, he has to kind of bring people back from that a little bit. Okay? Uh, and they had this statement, they said, the stomach is made for food and the food is made for the stomach. And the implication of that is, hey, the body's made for sex, and the sex is made for the body, so I'm in the right town. And, and, this, is, and this is the way we think. And Paul's trying to bring them back, and Paul's saying, no, here's something really radical. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And your body and your soul, they're not two separate things. Now, we take this for granted, but we've had 2,000 years of Christian culture. But, you know, pre-Christian uh, thinkers... Uh, had a dualistic understanding, we have an idea that you are one being, body and spirit in one. They didn't have that understanding. Now Paul, he's telling you that we have one being, right? Body and soul, they go together. And that's that's really the trouble with with, with, with the sin of sexuality, okay? Um, it's because it's, it's a sin against your whole being. It's not just your body, like the Greeks were trying to say. It's your whole being. Hey, Greeks, you guys who focus so much on the greatness of the soul, that's exactly what you're defiling. The two go together. Okay, now this led to more problems. Because Paul had said all this when he was back there, but they misunderstood. So they said, Paul, gosh. Uh, and, and then if, if you think that about sex, sexuality, well then... Geez, Paul, you must be against marriage, okay? And Paul has to talk about Paul has to talk about the nature of marriage, and you've probably heard this before, okay? Now, concerning the unmarried, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending distress, it's well for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be free. Are you free of a wife? Then don't seek marriage. But if you marry, you don't sin, okay? If a girl marries, she doesn't sin. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I'd like to spare you of that. I mean, brethren, the appointed time is short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn live as though they weren't mourning. And those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the world as we know it is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord and how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about worldly affairs and how to please her husband. I'd like to say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint against you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, now Paul says... Three things in there, okay? And this is very often misunderstood. Paul's talking about the primacy of what's eternal. Right? 
Paul's talking about the goodness of marriage. And Paul's praising celibacy. All three. Now some people they'll hear that and they'll think, Paul's putting down marriage. Some people will make that claim against Paul. Paul's putting down marriage when he says that about celibacy. Paul was defending marriage. Okay? Paul was defending marriage against the people that were attacking it. Because they had heard all that he had said about the, the body and all about uh, um, uh, immorality. And they, had, they, had, they were willing to write marriage off entirely. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. Paul was defending marriage. But at the same time, Paul is esteeming something entirely new. Now, never and before, um, in the same spirit of, of Christ, had there ever been anything like celibacy. Now, you might have heard of the Vestal Virgins of Rome. That kind of, totally different. Okay, Totally. I'm not going to get into that. But there had never been anything like, like celibacy. And Paul is praising it. And he's praising it in the same way in which he's talking about, hey, in your marriage, in your dealings with the world, in your dealings with all things, primacy on what's eternal. All right? Don't lose your focus. Don't lose your focus. The world's passing away. And in Christian matrimony, it's an image of an eternal union. Now, the real spouse of your soul is God. The real spouse of your soul is God. That's what we're getting ready for. And that's the same for everybody. Okay? We're all made for God. Okay? And, he's, and he's saying, hey, the world, is, the world is passing away. Make a primacy of what's... Of what's uh, uh, fix your heart on what lasts forever. Keep what's important in the, as your supreme business. Be about God's business. Use your time to, to serve Him well. Uh, this time in the world is, is short. Okay? So when you hear that, please remember three things. He's defending marriage, not attacking it. And he, make no doubt about it, he was esteeming celibacy. And in all things and for all people, he's telling us, keep your focus on what's eternal. Now, Paul never knew a parish priest. Right? Paul never knew a parish priest. But if he had, he might have said, I'd like to spare you these worries about leaky roofs. I'd like to spare you these worries about people who back into doors that have to be replaced. I'd like to spare you these worries about computer servers that break down and internets that don't function. I'd like to spare you these worries about the dial account and building funds and all these other things. You know, go into a monastery. <laughs> go into a monastery. Well, I tried that. It didn't work. Right? I told you, I tried to be a monk and I flunked. All right? All right. Um, so let's take a look real briefly here at disorders in mass. Okay? Um, what I'm going to do real, real quickly, uh, I'm going to uh, summarize this whole business of distractions in mass. Very, very briefly, just for the interest of time. Uh, Paul talks about head coverings for women. Okay? And the reason why I wanted to go over that was because you can go through letters of Paul and you can find little troublesome passages everywhere. And sometimes you'll find people that make these accusations against Paul by cherry-picking little passages that say Paul's against women or Paul's against you know whatever it might be. And there's this one passage I just was going to read to you just for the interest of time, I'm going to skip it, in which he talks about a woman's head covering. A woman's got to have her head covered. Okay? And what I, the point that I want to make about that is, where in the rest of the history of the church do you find that in the teaching of the church? Do you find that in the writings of the saints? Do you find that as an emphasis? Where in the rest of the history of the church do you find that? Okay, now the answer is nowhere. Okay? And what that tells us is that this head covering business, it was a local problem. In Corinth at the time, 
A woman's head covered was a sign of modesty. And you can maybe kind of just imagine, you know, maybe the you know, some woman, she's, she's working up at the temple at Aphrodite, she's trying to draw undue attention to herself. Maybe she's doing something with the hair, you know, to try to get people to come to her, whatever it might be. And you can understand how a head covering might have been a sign of modesty. So Paul's saying, hey, ladies, when you come to Mass, go modest, all right? A message which he should preach in our own time, okay? You know, when the bishop does confirmations, do you know that all the people in the confirmations wear little red robes? They all wear little red robes. You want to know why? He learned by experience that if you didn't get them covered up, they're not going to know what they're supposed to wear, all right? So he was trying to tell the Corinthians... Be modest, all right? Ladies, cover your heads. But it's a local problem. And the point I wanted to make, the only point I wanted to make on that is please don't let people mislead you by cherry-picking passages of Paul that have nothing to do with the rest of the teaching of our church. If you want to understand the scriptures, please place it in the context of the rest of what we believe and what we've always taught down through the centuries. And that will protect people from you know, shooting little Bible bullets at you and trying to distract you about Paul. Okay. But let's take a look at something kind of interesting here. Um, problems that arose at Mass. Now here's a, a passage, I'm, I'm, another passage, I'm not, read, read the first half of this uh, um, um, passage. I'm only going to read you the second half just out of the interests of time. But uh, in the, Paul's describing an interesting phenomenon in the ancient church. Now we come to Mass, and what do we do? We sit down, and we have our readings, right? And then the priest has the Eucharist, right? And then you go forth. Do you know how that came to be? Here's how it came to be. Painting in broad strokes now. Back in the earliest days, like St. Paul days, in which there wasn't entirely a clear distinction between the synagogue and and the Eucharist, they went to the synagogue and they heard the readings. Then they went to somebody's house and they celebrated the Eucharist. That's where we get our liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist. That's where it comes from. In the ancient church, they went to the synagogue, they listened to the readings, they went to somebody's house, and they celebrated the Eucharist. But, in the very, 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 very ancient church, like the days of Paul, they didn't just celebrate the Eucharist. They had a meal. right? They had a meal. A regular old meal. Now, remember when I talked about all these divisions in the church? And I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Paul, and some of them are lower class, some of them are upper class. Well, they basically brown bag it when they went to these dinners. right? It was potluck. Now, some people coming to the dinners had, uh, you know, uh, something very simple, because that was all they could afford. Some people coming to the dinners had something very fancy, because they had more money. Some people coming to the dinners didn't have anything at all. And Paul got upset. He said, you know, this, this meal is supposed to unite you. Now it's dividing you. Please, this is the Eucharist. We're supposed to be united in the Eucharist. Don't let these, uh, don't let these divisions, don't let the Eucharist become a source of division. Um, and, and my only point there is, it's kind of interesting in the ancient church how it used to be. They quickly separated these communal meals from the Eucharist. And what we ended up with is our modern day Mass, Liturgy of the Word, Liturgy of the Eucharist. But of course, the New Testament is still being written. Okay, so uh, but slowly, organically, this is this is this is how it developed. Now, here's something interesting. He talks about the nature of the Eucharist. Picture for a moment one of these early ancient home masses. Now, everybody brings their food. What else do they bring? Drink. Drink. Yeah. Where are they? Corinth. <laughs> what do we know about Corinth? 
How many bars are there per city block? How well are they known for their self-restraint? Not so much, okay? What happened at Mass? They got drunk. They got drunk. And Paul was like, please, please, you guys, this is sacred. He had to, I mean, you talk about problems. We think we got it bad, okay? We, we think we got it bad. All right, but Paul talks also about the worthy reception of the Eucharist. Now, this is, this is very interesting. I'm on chapter 11, all right? All right? Um, and I'm reading uh, verses, verses 23 to, to, to 32. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also the cup, after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks a judgment upon himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. And if we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now this is the oldest account of the Eucharist we have. Okay? The oldest account of the Eucharist we have. And what we have here is the words that we say still in the Mass. Okay? This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. And he gives us an understanding from the earliest times now, of the same thing we believe about the Blessed Sacrament. This isn't ordinary bread and wine. This isn't ordinary food and drink. Because if it were, why would he be talking about eating and drinking a judgment on yourself, eating and drinking unworthily? He's talking about eating and drinking the body and the blood of the Lord. And that's why you have to be worthy uh, to receive it. Certainly it's not a symbol. Um, and he says, this is something I received from, the, this, is, this is something that was handed on and delivered to me, a tradition which goes back to Christ himself. Okay? Interestingly enough, this passage right here in Corinthians is very similar to St. Luke's passage in his treatment of the Eucharist. And that's because Luke and Paul were companions. Luke traveled with Paul. And when you hear the Gospel of Luke, what you're really hearing is the preaching of Paul. And Luke and Paul knew each other in Ephesus. And anybody know who else lived in Ephesus? The Blessed Virgin Mary. And whose gospel has all the Mary stories in it? Luke. Isn't that interesting? You got Paul, Luke, and the Blessed Mother sitting down in union and prayer and, and just unimaginable. I'd love to be a fly on the wall and listen to what they have to say. Okay? And this is what you see now, the oldest account of the Eucharist, and, and, and one of the earliest understandings that you've got to be worthy. Okay? And John Paul II points to this line to show the ancient link between the need for Eucharist and the sacrament of penance. So keep, so keep this in mind. You don't just walk up cavalierly and receive that. That's the body and blood of Christ. Okay. Um, now, just very briefly, I'm going to kind of skim over this one right here, Ordinary and Extraordinary Graces, chapter 12. But let me just give you kind of a basic understanding. Um, you might have heard some of these lines said before. You might have heard some of these lines uh, uh, um, said before. Um, let see if I can find a real famous passage here. There are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There's a variety of services but the same Lord. There's a variety of working but the same God who inspires all in each one. 
each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You've heard that before, right? Here's what Paul's talking about. Here's what Paul's talking about. In Corinth, he saw an outpouring of charismatic graces. Grace is the Holy Spirit. Now, some people received extraordinary graces. They could speak in tongues. Somebody else could interpret what somebody else could hear. Somebody else could, uh, could, could, could prophesy. Now, these people that got these extraordinary graces, they began to think they were better than the people who didn't. Okay, and Paul, in this passage, chapter 12, he's saying, look, extraordinary graces are given for the benefit of everybody. They're not given for the benefit of the one who's got it. And they're also given independently of the value and the holiness of the person who received it. So if you've got the gift of prophecy, if you've got the gift of tongues, if you've got the gift of of, of interpreting tongues, if you've got the gift of preaching, if you've got the gift of teaching, whatever it might be, you might not even be in the state of grace. Because it's not for you. It's for everybody else. But there are sanctifying graces... And those are given to everybody. And that is your holiness. And that is your closeness before God. So you had all these different gifts. All these different people esteeming themselves better. Because you know you can imagine if somebody had the ability to speak in some tongues. Or somebody else could understand some cryptic language you never heard before. They might begin to think that they're better. Or more valuable. Or more worthy. Or holier. Paul had to level the playing field. And so what did people ask? They said, well Paul... What's the most important gift? And here's the most beautiful passage from the first letter to the Corinthians. Okay? Chapter 13. And Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I don't have love... Again, nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. Love, doesn't, love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in what's wrong. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll pass away. And for tongues, they'll cease. And for knowledge, it'll pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. And when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. And I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. That's bridal top 40. Hear it in weddings all the time. Okay? And a couple little interesting little things right there to keep in mind. Um, in the temple of Dionysius and Sybil, a couple of uh, major uh, um, uh, Greek uh, gods... Uh, they worshipped by blowing trumpets and clashing cymbals. So what does Paul say? If I have tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and I'm a clashing cymbal. Okay? Back then, a mirror was just heavily polished metal. Okay? It doesn't really give the perfect image that we have. And so Paul says, 
Now we see as in a mirror dimly. Well, we don't, we don't see as in mirrors dimly. We see perfectly. But Paul was referring to something back then. He was like, you know, it was kind of vague. Um, a couple little you know, interesting things there. But let's just, let's just differentiate uh, between the three kinds of love that the Greeks had. Okay? The three terms. Eros, philia, and agape. Right? And very, very briefly, eros, it doesn't necessarily mean like erotic in the sense in which people often use that term, but eros is a love that's all about me. It's all about me. So I can have an eros when a cool breeze hits me on a hot day. Or I can have an eros when I throw back a cold drink on a parched uh, uh, throat. Uh, or you can have an eros for a new car. Or you can have an eros for your favorite song. Or for chocolate cake from Costco. You really want to get, you really want to get me going? You really want to tempt me to do wrong? Chocolate cake from Costco. Okay. But it, it, there's a love there, but it's all about me. Then there's a higher kind of love. It's philia. Philia is friendship love. And you know how it is with friends. You treat me well, I'll treat you well. It's 50-50. But when Paul speaks about love here, in one of the most beautiful passages ever, he uses the term agape. Now, agape is the opposite of eros. Agape is all the other. It's all you. Now, Paul says if you don't have agape, you have nothing. And that's what we're building towards. That's the cross. How much... uh, There was no eros on the cross. There's no philia on the cross. The cross is all agape. That's the wisdom of Paul. That's the message of Paul. Okay? So what that really does, that chapter 13, it gives a, a, a beautiful summation to all the other things that Paul was trying to talk about in his first letter to the Corinthians. And I've, I've run over time just a little bit, but um, it was a tough letter. Okay? Uh, anybody have any questions about anything I said? Yeah? with you, Roman, the exact, like, for example, like a chronological uh, progression of, of, of when it happened, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have an answer for you. For example, I, I know that happened. I can tell you, I can tell you it definitely happened by the time of Constantine, but exactly when it happened, I, I, I simply don't know. Um, yes, I am. I'm talking about the liturgy of the Eucharist. And in, you know, in, in this in this ancient church, they were doing it in the very ancient church. They were doing it in homes and after kind of like a like a potluck dinner. But then they would turn to the sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. And Paul, trying to bring this ancient church into line, had to kind of correct some abuses there. And that's basically what Paul was doing. My second question is: Yes. Now, Roman, uh, for this, just for the sake of time, can I reference you to my first class, right, which is online, in which I, I actually do address that entire subject. It, to, to give you a, a satisfactory li- answer, uh, uh, it would... Uh, uh, I'm, I just, I'm trying to be fair to everybody right now, okay? Or I'll, I can talk to you afterwards, okay? But, but yeah, I, I do talk about it in the first class, and that one's available online. Anybody else? 
Good enough for one day? Okay, so next week we pick up where we left off. We're going to talk about two Corinthians. And uh, we'll see you next week.